Hey, just a note of personal privilege, uh, in the uh, congregation today is our guest preacher for tonight, Pastor and Mrs. Ray Cortez, wonderful, beautiful friends of this church. And Ray, if you could just stand wherever you're high, there's Ray, would you welcome Ray, and he'll be speaking with us for us tonight. So let me ask you a question as we begin. Suppose you sat down with a group of believers and you said, this is a group of believers, why did Jesus come? Give me a theological reason, biblical reason, why did Jesus come to the world? Now, you might get a range of responses. They could be, well, he came to save. He said, I came to seek and to save. And that would be a true and good response. You might, you might hear somebody say, well, he came to heal all who were oppressed by the enemy. That'd be a good and right response. That's what Peter says in the book of Acts. He came to heal all those who were oppressed by the enemy. So many good responses. Let me tell you one I don't think you'll hear. He came to start a church. You won't hear that from many people, will you? And yet, Jesus said that part of his saving mission was not simply to take hold of a few individuals here and there, but to build his church. Why wouldn't people include the church in their answer? Well, it's the fault of many folks just like myself who are pastors and preachers and sometimes in our enthusiasm to make a distinction between being somebody who walks in a church door or who listens to a sermon or a service and having true and living faith in Jesus, we might say something like, well, you know, a person can be in the church and and not be a real believer in Jesus. And following, a Jesus, following Jesus isn't just a, a matter of being in a church. And that would all be true. But sometimes the church then becomes so diminished in people's understanding and so sidelined in their view of reality, so diminished on the horizon of what we think encompasses our faith, that we forget that Jesus has promised in his saving mission to build his church. And that is why we're going to t spend the next uh, few Sundays together in this series, Remembering the Church. In 2019, this is Barna Research, 100% of Christians, 100% said that they had attended or participated in a gathered Christian worship service at some point during a six-month period. In 2020, that number had dropped by 25%. And you say, well, yeah, but the pandemic. Yes, the pandemic. But that number included an online service. So in other words, one in four believers in the last year have simply and completely detached from anything that would resemble what it means to be together as the gathered people of God. And in evangelicalism in general, 
the place of the church in our lives and in the way in which we live our faith is increasingly subject to people saying it is not actually necessary. But let's read Jesus' words together and then some words from a letter that Paul wrote to Titus. I want to invite you to read with me from Matthew chapter 16 and then from Titus chapter 2. So hear God's word. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then later, in Titus chapter 2, listen to how Paul describes the work of God's saving grace in our lives. For the grace of God has appeared, this is Titus 2, 11 and following, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. A people. I will build my church. Part of Jesus' saving mission is not to simply cleanse or liberate an isolated individual here and there, but to create this community of faith that he calls the church. Now, of course, so often people hear a word like church and they hear it through an institutional filter. But if you hear what Jesus is saying, the word that he's using here, you could just as easily say, hear Jesus saying, I will build my community. I will bring together my gathering. I will build my house. And so it's not simply some kind of institution that he's seeking to create, but a new community. And Paul recognizes that this is something that God has always been doing. God never came into the world and said, and I will be your God and you will be my person. No, What has God always said? I will be your God and you shall be my people. There was always something deeply interpersonal, deeply communal in God's saving acts in history. In fact, what Paul writes about there in Titus, about the grace of God appearing and what Jesus has done to redeem us, to purify us to be a people for his own possession is completely rooted in the narrative of the book of Exodus where God comes to his people 
who are in terrible tyranny, under terrible tyranny in Egypt, and he liberates them. The grace of God appears. He says to them later in Exodus, you see how I have come to you, how I have borne you on eagles' wings, and I have brought you to myself, and now you will be my people, my cherished possession in all the earth. And Paul is building on that narrative of saying that Jesus is the ultimate Moses who comes. He's the God who is our Savior, who comes to liberate us from an even greater tyranny and to create us to be a people, his people, his community. Paul will go on to use language which we'll explore in coming weeks about us being the body of Christ together. Now, of course, as soon as we start talking about being this gathered community and emphasizing that, we need to make a couple of preliminary remarks. Because there are people joining us online. And to all of our friends, brothers and sisters joining us online, everything we're saying about being gathered together includes you. We are in the middle of a pandemic. And its severity has increased in recent weeks. And there are many who do not yet feel able to join with others in gathered public worship. And we want to say to everybody who's watching online, we are with you, you are with us, we are one in heart, we are one church, we are joined together. And remember, what some of that research found is that people had, had stopped even gathering online. They just dropped it all together. And so we are glad that you are joining us in the middle of these great sorrows and taking time to be part of what God is doing in assembling us and building us together as a people. And we also need to acknowledge that there are people who have dropped out of church because the churches they were in were not places of healing, but places of harm. That there were toxic environments in congregations where people came for healing and found themselves wounded. And to all those who have been wounded and dropped out of church, to those who've suffered abuse, and misogyny, and racism, and sexism, and all the things that so often people have encountered in what passes as congregations, we want you to know, we are with you. And God is the one who will heal, through his gospel, broken, wounded hearts. And the ultimate objective of that is not to leave anyone in isolation but to knit us back together into the fabric of fellowship that we call the Christian church. Because the Christian church is not an optional extra for a believer. It just isn't. And the reason for that is because Jesus has promised to build his church. And the grace of God appearing to deliver us from sin and to teach us to live godly lives includes knitting us together to be a people for God's own possession. And this is something the church has always said. It's something we've always confessed together. It's something we've always taught each other. When I was growing up in the church, it's what we said every single Sunday when we used the Apostles' Creed. I believe, we would say, in the Father and then one Lord Jesus Christ. And then I believe in the Holy Spirit. And right on the heels of saying I believe in the Holy Spirit and I believe in the church. Because the church is the outcome of the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. This has always been part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. 
Being a Christian was never meant to be something that you practiced in isolation or on your own. We were never called to a churchless faith or an isolated Christianity. That is, in the immortal words of the princess bride, inconceivable. Because Jesus has saved us and built us together. We even sang it. We not only confessed it in the creed, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, and in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, we sang about the church. Some of you are, if you're over the age of 97 or so, may have sung with me, the church's one foundation. We sang hymns about the church. There are no songs being written about the church today. The church simply isn't on the horizon of anyone's theological imagination. And that means we are, we are bereft in our conversation and in our commitments of this remarkable truth that is in God's word, which summons us to live out our lives as disciples of Jesus. But we sang together, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She, the church, is his new creation. By water and the word from heaven, he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood, he bought her. And for her life, he died. Elect from every nation, yet one, or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, Partakes one holy food and two, one hope she presses with every grace endued. When you grow up confessing and singing that truth and it gets down in your bones and you begin to understand what it means to be part of this remarkable project which Jesus has undertaken to not only save the lost but to build them into, to gather them together, to create this remarkable family that he calls his ecclesia, his church. Ecclesia, the Greek prefix is ek, the ek, out, and the Greek verb is kaleo, called the called out people. What is the church of Jesus? It's the people by his spirit he is called out of the world and called together into fellowship with him and with one another. And that is what you and I as followers of Jesus are part of. What you and I are being built together to enjoy. And while many people have opted out, we have to trust that the Lord will continue to help them Opt back in. What many people have settled for as well is simply a large meeting, a kind of aggregation instead of being a congregation. An aggregation is just a group of people who have no particular commitments to each other, no particular responsibilities to each other, and they get together for an event. Perhaps it's an entertainment event or a sporting event. If 65,000 people gather together at a football stadium to watch the Dolphins play, that's a great event, perhaps, if they win on those rare occasions. But then everybody is just scattered, and there are no continuing commitments to one another, no, commi no particular responsibilities to one another. That's an aggregation, but that's not a congregation. A congregation is a community of the committed, a community of people who, who have been bought and bonded together 
They have been brought together through the agency of the Holy Spirit. They have been created. The church isn't something that people create. The church is something that God creates and assembles together. Though, yes, many people are leaving. And yet the church exists as this testimony in the world to God's saving grace and mercy. We just finished this series on Ephesians, Beyond Imagination. That God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you could ever ask or think. That key verse there in Ephesians 3. But that's followed up by this. That there will be God's glory revealed to principalities and powers, he says in chapter 3, through the church. That God has decided not to display his glory through some superstar individual, but through the congregated members of Jesus' body bought with his blood. By our differences brought together, by our weaknesses met by his grace, by our lives which are so diverse, made one. And when that work of the cross which has both a vertical and horizontal beam, the vertical ending our alienation from God, uniting us to God, and the horizontal beam ending our alienation from one another and uniting us together with him. When Jesus takes people from all over the world and every nationality and every ethnicity and all these different language groups, every tribe and tongue and people and nation under heaven, and gathers us all together in this redeemed community and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Hell trembles at that because there is humanity finally brought back together, the broken healed. And how does that happen? It happens through the cross. That's not an aggregation. That's not a crowd. That's a congregation. It's the church of Jesus Christ. But people leave, and I understand. About 12 years ago, Anne Rice, famous novelist, wrote these words, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I remain committed to Christ, as always, but not to being part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For 10 years now, I've tried, I've failed, I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. I'm out. In the name of Christ, I quit Christianity. Amen. And probably some of us can go, you know, I get it. We have felt frustrations, and we've wanted out. Yes, I grew up saying I believe in the church and singing the church's one foundation, but at the zenith of my wisdom when I was 16 years old, I opted out. I said I want nothing more to do with this dead, traditional, historic Christianity. I wanted to be with the most radical, on fire, and fuego people I could find. And I found them. I wanted to be part of the church, if there was any church at all, that was informal, flexible, it was flowing like a river, a river of fire, it was lava Christianity, man, we were moving and consuming everything in our path. 
Then I spent a day with Francis Schaeffer, and some of you have heard part of that story. I'll save it. But there was another part of that story, a latter part of the conversation, where he looked at me and he said, you grew, he knew I was Lutheran. He said, you grew up in one of the churches of the Reformation. Why aren't you in one of the churches of the Reformation? Why aren't you identifying with the historic church, the historical church? And I said, because it was so dead. It was so messed up. It was so, it was, it was just, uh, who wants any part of that compromised situation? He goes, oh, oh. Now he had about a, I'm, I was 22 at the time, planted a church in London, and uh, we, we, were, we were gonna go for it. We were gonna have a church, you know, we were gonna have a, you know, the church, right? And uh, he had about another year to live, Professor Schaefer did, and he, he looked at me and he said, so, so you, you, you have to answer a question for me. I said, what is it? He goes, does Jesus love the perfect church or the imperfect church? Now, I knew I was in trouble as soon as he asked that question. Because, <laughs> you know, there's times when you're so, you're so dumb you don't know the answers. And other times you're smart enough to know the answer's coming and you better duck. And he just, I just said, well, uh, I guess the imperfect one. He goes, that's right, the imperfect one. But you don't. You don't love the imperfect church, do you? You think the church, and the only church you can be part of, and is the perfect one, and it's even worse. There's a reason you think that. It's because you think you're a perfect pastor. Because it would take that to lead a perfect church. Ow, 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 stop, stop that. There's an installation service tonight at 6 o'clock. No perfect pastor will be installed here. <laughs> Remember what happens in this text in Matthew chapter 16. Peter at the back of the class says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, You didn't see that by flesh and blood. My Father's revealed it to you. Jesus goes on in this conversation to say, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified. And Peter says, Peter says No, that's a really bad idea. And Jesus says, get behind me, Peter. No, that's not what he says. He says what? Get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. That's a bad day for a disciple. But it was a, it was a fair assessment. He says, you have your, your mind is a mess. You're thinking the wrong kinds of thoughts. But Jesus did not reject him. He said, get in line. Get behind me. You need to understand, Peter, what's motivating you. You see, Jesus takes us on as his disciples, but he doesn't instantly make you perfect. He deals with the darkness that's within us, and he builds us into his house, and he uses us and blesses us and trains us and transforms us. The grace of God has appeared, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Not instantly transforming us so that every single one of our desires are only ever always godly. Jesus takes imperfect people and he knits them together in these imperfect communities called congregations, places of grace. And people drop out. Why? Well, there's abuse. We've mentioned it. Rather than the church being a house of healing, it's become a house of harm to many people. It's a place where people are not free to ask questions. 
or wrestle with doubt. And whether those are young people or people in the middle point of life, as uh, Dante said, in the middle part of my life, I found myself in a dark wood and lost and unable to find my way. There are many people in the middle of life who find themselves in Dante's position in that dark wood and need a guide. But young people, too, have questions. But many times the church has this kind of neo-fundamentalist spirit that says don't ask any questions and don't express any doubts. You're not allowed to ask hard questions. No, 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 no. Spanish River, bring your questions. Bring your questions. And by the way, one of the answers which is possible is I don't know. Because God is not so much the subject of our study as he is the cause of our wonder. And the task of Christian discipleship is not to give easy answers to hard questions, but to, to direct people more and more into the mystery of Jesus Christ. And so bring your questions. Because one of the first times we see Jesus in the temple is he's sitting there asking questions and giving answers. Because he who questions and he who brings the answer is one. But people aren't made to feel welcome in the church so often. These are the answers. That's it. Psychological abuse, the abuse of power, sexual abuse. There's the politicizing of the church, so identifying the church with politics of this age that people fl- place their, their faith in politics. They, they, they turn their politics into their faith. So much so that people who don't quite share in their politics, who might see things differently, then don't feel they can be part of the church. I I hate to break this to some of you. You're going to get to heaven, and there are going to be people there who are not in your political party. I know that it will shock the living daylights out of you. There's, of course, radical individualism. I've got Jesus. i got me. i got my Bible. I don't need shepherds in my life for sure to guide me. I don't need fellowship. i got the Bible. Why should I mess around with the church? There's so much about it I don't like. I just don't like it all that much. Well, you're in good company. You really are. You know, uh, there's a great... Great section in C.S. Lewis's book, God in the Dock. I'm just going to read you a portion of this where he writes about what it was like when he first became a Christian. C.S. Lewis. My own experience is that when I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought that I could do it on my own. By retiring to my rooms and reading theology, I wouldn't go to the churches and the gospel halls. And then later I found that it was the only way of flying your flag. I found that this meant being a target You see, if there is anything in the teaching of the New Testament which is in the nature of a command, it is that you are obliged to receive the sacrament. He's talking about the Lord's Supper. And you can't give the Lord's Supper to yourself any more than you can baptize yourself. He says you can't do that without being part of the church. And listen to this. I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be a fifth-rate poem set to sixth-rate music. I just want to tell you, the whole, whole thing about I don't like the music goes back a long way, all right? You're right there with C.S. Lewis. But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually, my conceit began to peel away. I realized that the hymns, which really were sixth-rate music, were nonetheless being sung with devotion and benefit by old saints in boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your ordinary conceit. See, one of the things that happens when you come to church with people who don't look like you, 
who aren't from your socioeconomic status, who don't share necessarily your view on everything, is that you begin to discover the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ. And another reason people drop out is because people think the church isn't there meeting their emotional needs. The church is here to affirm my inner desires, to affirm me. And if it doesn't, then it's not really being faithful. It's not meeting my needs. I'll go find a church that will meet my needs, or I'll just abandon it all together. I think one of the more interesting accounts of this I've read recently is in a book called, this is the title of the book, How to Be a Christian Without Going to Church, The Unofficial Guide to Alternative Forms of Christianity. And the author's name is Kelly Bean, and here's what she writes. Here I am on a bright Sunday morning, curled up on my cushy orange chair, sipping tea and loving Jesus. It's been quite some time since Sunday mornings meant getting the family spruced up for a church service. I'm one of them, the non-goers. The great news is it's possible to be a Christian and not go to church, but being the church, remain true to the call of Christ. Now she's right about the fact that being the church as opposed to going to church is the issue. She's right about that. But this description that goes on, that she says she doesn't have to gather with other people, she doesn't have to make the effort to publicly identify with the followers of Jesus, just sit in your own house, in your own living room. She says, here's how she describes the church, is anyone up for a pickle-making party or a living room songwriting session? Jesus will be there. If you want to start a church, throw a party and see who shows up. Now, I just want to testify that pickle-making and songwriting are sacred activities. And having people over is sweet, but that's not the church. No, the church is a covenanted, committed assembly of the called out and called together under the headship of Jesus Christ against which the gates of hell will not prevail. That, my friends, is not a pickle-making party. That is something utterly and completely different. Jesus faced it in his own generation. He left Caesarea Philippi where he said these words in Matthew chapter 16, that I'll build my church, and he headed for Jerusalem. And when he got there on Palm Sunday, it says he went into the temple and he overturned the temples of the money changers. And you remember what he said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. And then it says the sick were brought to him and he healed them. And it says children began breaking out in loud praise and they said, tell the children to be quiet. And Jesus said, no, let the praises resound. And then the next day, he came into the temple, and he taught them all day. If you take that two-day period, those two days, those first couple of days in Holy Week, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, there was unhindered praise. God's holiness was revered. The sick and the broken were healed. And the word of the Lord was heard. The voice of God was heard in his house. It was like for two days, the whole reason that that house existed had finally, finally been realized. It's where people was he were healed. It's where God was revered as holy. It's where the voice of God was heard. It's where the broken were made whole. And then he went to the cross to die for our sins, to retrieve us and redeem us, to ransom us so that we could be united to God and united to one another. So how can that happen in our day? Well, it starts very simply with the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me give you these three things and we'll close with them. The revelation of Jesus. It takes a revelation of Jesus. Who do people say that I am? Back of the class, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Simon, son of John. 
son of Jonah, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. In other words, you don't know who I am. You don't know I'm the Messiah. By simply, naturally, and intellectually analyzing the data, you have something that has come from God the Father. That's what it means to become a follower of Jesus. God the Father reveals to you through the power of the Holy Spirit the identity, the power, the grace, the majesty, the glory, the wonder of Jesus Christ. You see him and you go, that's who he is. He's not just some figure in history. Here he is, the savior of the world. It's a revelation. And when that revelation grips your heart, your heart is changed forever. Blessed are you, Simon. You didn't figure this out. You're not a Christian today, my friend, because you're smarter than your neighbor. If you're a Christian today, it's because God's had mercy on you and shown you who Jesus is. But then it takes a confession of Jesus. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, because if you believe in your heart, you then confess with your mouth. So you not only see who Jesus is, you confess who Jesus is. But you remember what happens next. Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, and Peter says, no, 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 no. Because Peter had a revelation of the person of Christ, but he hadn't yet had a revelation of the work of Christ. That Christ needed to go to the cross to pay for Peter's sins and my sins and your sins. You see, friends, he could easily say about us, Satan, because we were trapped in darkness. We were trapped in despair, and he liberated us. My friends, he went to the cross to free us, and that's why it says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, you've never been chased by a gate. Church has never been chased by a gate. These gates, what's he talking about, the gates of hell? The gates he's talking about, hell is Hades, it's the realm of the dead, it's the Greek equivalent of the Sheol for the Hebrew people, the realm of the dead. And Jesus, when he went to the cross, he went there and he went down into the realm of the dead and the gates were shut tight on the dead. But when Jesus entered the realm of the dead, he rose from the dead and he burst open the gates and he said, everyone who is trapped by the tyranny of death, everyone who is trapped by the penalty of sin, I am freeing, I am liberating, I am going to build, I'm going to gather, I'm going to assemble my community and it's a community of forgiven people who I am freeing forever from the penalty of death. I am going to assemble them around my throne by my grace for my glory. That's what he did at the cross and in his resurrection, and the gates of hell could not prevail against it. And that's why in our lives we begin to realize that we're part of this community of the resurrection, this community that Jesus is building, this people. Like I said, <laughs> I've been in it since I was very small. I was born on Sunday morning at 8.30 just in time for an early service. <laughs> they took me to church the next week, threw water on my head. How's that for a welcome? My gosh, I haven't missed since. Grown up around all this. You know what I remember? I remember being four years old, sitting in a pew, and an old man in front of me, turning around in the service and handing me little lifesavers. That's what I remember. He wasn't doing that because my breath was bad. He was doing that because he wanted me to be quiet so he could hear the sermon. And he knew that maybe the sermon that day, like today, was a four-pack lifesaver. It's going to take a couple extra. Here, David. Here, David. And all through my life, you see, somebody has simply been saying to me about what it means to be a Christian, here, David. 
When you take communion, a minister says, here's the bread, here's the cup, because somebody gave it to them. Because somebody's been giving it to somebody else for 2,000 years. It's how we give life to each other. And whether you're online or detached or here, I want you to know God has called us to give life to each other. In an interview with GQ magazine, that wonderful spiritual journal, the Austin-based actor Matthew McConaughey, after he won his Oscar for Best Actor with Dallas Buyers Club, was asked, do you and your family go to church? He said, yeah, we go every Sunday. He said, it's a, it's a church that believes that Jesus has died to forgive our sins, and I need it. And so we go. And then he asked, is that a reconnection for you or something you've always done? And he goes, I got away from it. But once we had children, we realized we had to go back. And see, for every Ann Rice that says, I'm out, there's a whole bunch of people saying, I'm ready to come home. And it especially happens for people when they have children. Because <laughs> when you have children and you see your family, you realize that God the Father has himself made a family. And families are weird. Families have weird uncles. People at the Thanksgiving table, you just go, please just shut up. Why are you here? And people that like music you don't like. And they don't get the jokes you tell. And at their funeral, you'll cry like a baby because you love them. And my friends, that's what being part of this is. It's all these people from Haiti and Brazil, distant regions like Tennessee, brought together into this family of faith by the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, Jesus said, this is my mission. It's why as, as a church, we don't just support missionaries, we plant churches. Because everybody needs Jesus, and everybody also needs a great church to call home. And this morning, you have a chance to see the Holy Spirit reconnect you. Let him do it. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for the disconnected, for the abused and the wounded and the hurting. Forgive the sins of your church. Forgive our sins where we've had cultures that had a gospel of grace proclaimed, but not grace that was lived. Forgive us for creating barriers to fellowship rather than avenues for connecting. Father, I pray for all those who are joining us online today who would long to be together, but right now just can't be because of the circumstances we face. And we pray for an end of those circumstances, not just because we want to see people delivered from disease and death. We long for that day. We, we want that. But also because we want to see your church gathered together so that with one heart and one voice, very loudly, we can shake hell up. But supremely, Father, we thank you for the blood of the cross that has saved us and forgiven us and delivered us from death. Thank you, Jesus, that you will build your church. We don't build it. You do it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We bless your name. You are the master builder. Amen and amen.